This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. You know, growing up, I heard a lot of jaw-dropping stories from my parents and my grandparents detailing all the terrible internal damage that leftists did, both theologically and politically, to their mainline Protestant churches. And thankfully, my parents got our family out of the mainline. But here we go again. Now we have a new generation of leftists determined to upend Bible-believing evangelical churches in the same way that their liberal forebears upended the mainline. Now, of course, Today's leftists don't think they're upending or destroying the church, but saving it. But unfortunately for them, we already have a blueprint from the main line for what happens when the left infiltrates Christianity from within. The gospel and biblical truth are soon compromised and eventually fail to matter much, if at all. So what is going on in our churches right now? And is there a way to stop the hijacking of Christianity? Such an important topic. We're going to talk about it today with Pastor Lucas Miles, who's author of the book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has hijacked the church. Lucas, welcome. Just wonderful to have you with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. You bet. How would you define today's Christian left? Who are these people exactly? Yeah, so I think the Christian left is a growing constituency of left-leaning Christians, and many times, unfortunately, Christians by name only, who have embraced progressive thought, liberal ideology, and oftentimes Marxist theory. And, you know, we're seeing this, they're kind of, they're really earmarked by uh, maybe um, being pro-choice, um, really abandoning the church's position for the sanctity of life um, by embracing the LGBT agenda um, and, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, participating in the revision of biblical definitions of marriage, you know, sex and gender. Yeah. Um, we're also seeing them, you know, uh, be very left politically and, of course, endorsing a lot of the socialist and Marxist ideals that we're seeing, you know, coming out of the current administration. So it's very concerning. And that's why I wrote the book, to really educate people and help draw us back to biblical Christianity. Oh, amen to that. I'm so glad you wrote the book because you're hitting on so many important things here. How would you differentiate this today's Christian left from the one maybe 40 years ago? Because I started out by talking about the main line and how we had a leftist movement in the main line, obviously, for many decades that decimated those denominations. Do you see this current crop as being different at all ideologically from the, the crop of decades ago? I mean, they're definitely drawing from some of the same sources. And so, um, you know, theologically, that looks like a, um, a belief in what is known as the historic Jesus, which sounds really good, but in actuality, it is a stripped-down um, caricature of Christ with all the divinity removed, uh, all of the miraculous removed, and you're left with Jesus the great social organizer rather than the savior of the world. Um, and they also would pull from authors like James Cone, who was really one of the forefathers of of black liberation theology in America um, and 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 others, and so they're they're sort of you know drinking from the same pool, so to speak. Um, but I think that they have moved into a little bit more of aggressive position. Uh, in the past, the Christian left seemed to be more content to sort of hang out in just the academic and uh, maybe elitist spheres of the Christian 
uh, world. Now we're seeing that really trickle down from the professor to the pastor into yeah. the pews. Yeah. And I think there's a lot more everyday people that have been impacted by these dangerous doctrines of the Christian left. Oh, yeah. I mean, over the last few years, it's been incredible to see all of the different parachurch ministries, for example, or college groups. It just seems like a daily trickle or even a tsunami of information that you're, you're seeing wokeness and social justice and progressive politics just infiltrating, it seems, not just the churches, but the parachurch and everywhere you look. And and one of the hybrids, I'm, I'm calling them hybrids, but you see, for example, people who will say, I adhere to the inerrancy of the Bible, but they're very woke. They're very in intersectionality, identity politics, liberal politics, these kinds of things. What do you make of those people who aren't full-fledged, you know, Jim Wallace's necessarily, but they're certainly claiming to be, you know, on board biblically as Christians, but they have a completely leftist mindset when they open their mouths or tweet? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, this is the chapter in the book I didn't want to write because, you know, I, I really wanted to approach this more from a theological standpoint. But as I got into it, I realized how important it was that I had to address some of these people by name. And so I added a chapter to the book called The Christian Cabal. And, you know, where I look at individuals, like you mentioned, that are maybe more on the extreme of the left side, like a guy like Jim Wallace or Jonathan Merritt, um, you know, Religion News Service. We're seeing this in a lot of some of the the presidents of some of our more liberal uh, Christian institutions. Um, the and, and as well as in the uh, in the inter- Christian entertainment industry, especially in Christian music, there's a yes. lot of those who've gone through deconversion experiences. Um, you know, then we have people like Beth Moore, who are you know uh, they have a lot of um, uh, foundation in biblical teaching, but yet by a lot of their actions, uh, they seem to be drifting further and further left. Yeah. And and so she's one that that feels like she's kind of in the middle of that spectrum where she's trying to decide: is she going to you know side with with uh, uh, the infallibility of Scripture, or is she going to embrace more and more of these progressive doctrines uh, that that uh, the left is introducing? And it seems that she continues to drift further and further left, and the more she's criticized for it, she almost just sort of doubles down yeah. you know, on this. And so I think ultimately we have to go beyond their words, and we have to look at their actions, we have to look at the things they're supporting, and really kind of read between those tweets uh, to look for that, that critical theory that is coming out of there. Yeah. Would you say that that's the real thing we ought to be paying attention to is the influence of critical theory and its stepchild critical race theory? Is that mainly where we're seeing the change, the infiltration and the ability to hijack churches? Yeah. So I think that there's a couple markers, uh, critical theory, critical race theory, certainly things that you know we should be very, very focused on. I think this is I think they're only going to be even uh, uh, the people are doubling, doubling down on them even more. So I think this next year or two is going to be really important to watch this as the the Biden administration continues to gain more and more uh, power and momentum, uh, you know, within the state. And it's important for people to realize that the left, as much as they talk about the separation of church and state, they really, they really don't want that. They actually want a, a church that is subservient to the state. Yeah. And so they are looking for ways to really, you know, uh, be able to keep their thumb kind of on the, uh, the religious uh, landscape of this country. And I think we're seeing that across the board. Additional things to watch for, I, I think that, you know, some of the progressive agendas of, uh, you know, transgenderism and, and, you know, various divergent, you know, uh, sexual orientations and these things. Uh, those are concerning. But to me, they, they, they just are a reinforcement that the Christian left has imba- abandoned the infallibility of Scripture. Yeah. And so while I care about those items, the belief behind that I care about even more, and that is when you abandon Scripture, we're going to just drift into whatever comes next. 
And that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. Well, right. This is all about, in the end, the authority of Scripture. And, and if you really believe that not only the Bible is inerrant, but that it, it is sufficient, that seems to be uh, two sides of the same coin for a lot of these people when you get into discussions about them. How do you see their view of the Bible as being, you know, the result of what we're seeing, their practices becoming and their ideology that they're embracing. How does that connect their view of the Bible and their errant positions? So in the book, The Christian Left, I address at one point uh, the the story of King Solomon and the very first case that he tried uh, was two women who came to him and they they each had a child. One of their children died in the night and the woman who lost her child switched the, the um the body of her child with the other woman's living child. And then they both woke up and, you know, um, sort of chaos ensued and they went before Solomon really as the judge. And so, you know, he had this response to them. He basically did the thing that nobody would think of because he was trying to discern which was the true mother. And his response was, bring me a sword. We're going to cut the baby in half and we'll give half to each side. Well, this is a gruesome story. It makes a point. The true mother said, no, whatever you do, don't harm the child. She can have him. And, and so I think that, you know, there's a parallel here of how the left views the Bible. Um, and, and because there's really a war right now going on of who's, who's, the, who's got the real claim on the truth about Jesus. Right. And, and, you know, conservative Christians, we are not willing to lay one finger on the Word of God. We would rather it be torn out of our hands and give it away than have anybody take one verse out of it. That's the right. left is very happy to go in with sort of white out and, and black sharpies and cross out and redact anything that they don't agree with. Yes. And they're willing to slay the baby, if you will, uh, just to make sure uh, that the other half doesn't try to lay claim to it. Boy, that's and right. and I, I think that it's so important that we recognize that the left has completely scrapped the infallibility of Scripture. They've downgraded it to just being a book, maybe at best about God, maybe some I wouldn't even say a moral standard. It's propaganda now for them. Oh, it is. Hang on, Lucas. We're going to take a very quick break. Lucas Miles is here. We'll come back discussing his book, The Christian Left, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. We'll return on Janet Mefford today after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. 
I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. And now through a match, your gift is doubled. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, if you are one of those Christians who thinks things are getting strange around these here parts, whether it's in your own congregation, in your denomination, or maybe even some of the parachurch organizations with which you've been involved over the years, and you notice that there's a lot of wokeness and a lot of deconstruction and a lot of leftism, there are reasons for that. We're talking about it with Pastor Lucas Miles. The Christian Left is his book, How Liberal Thought Has Hijacked the Church. Now, one of the things you talk about, Lucas, this Trojan horse, as you call it, uh, succeeds and infiltrating the church. They have created, as you say, animosity toward conservatives and traditionalists who hold to biblical ideals on social issues on the one hand, and they've also managed to create a sense of moral superiority. And I think you're spot on about that. That's exactly what's going on. Is that mainly how they've been able to get as far as they've gotten with hijacking the church? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they've really set themselves up as what I call these referees of morality, uh, that, that basically that, you know, uh, it, instead of the Bible being the thing that is presenting us truth and, and in showing us God's righteous standard, it's really the position of the state that is now declaring that, or just sort of the, uh, uh, you know, the mob uh, that, is, that is really taking on that position. And so, you know, social justice oftentimes is really just sort of um, you know, who can be the loudest or this loudest constituency of people that are going to declare and demand what they want. That doesn't always align with biblical justice. And so, you know, well, that's a much broader topic. I think it's important to realize that the left has tried to present themselves in such a way um, that they are the ones. So, you know, when you hear people like, and I'm from South Bend, Indiana, and so we had former uh, Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg, who then went on to run for Democrat uh, for uh, uh, for president, um, you know, he's a perfect example of the Christian left. He's a guy who talked about Jesus very often throughout his campaign, and I think you're going to see a lot more of him in the future. And, you know, he's very comfortable kind of, you know, really explaining theology on the campaign trail, but his theology was empty of any sort of really biblical foundation other than talking points that fulfilled a Marxist and and sort of socialist, democratic socialist viewpoint, you know, things like, uh, you know, have supporting open borders or, um, you know, uh, supporting progressive views of the LGBT agenda. And so uh, this is this is sort of this empty, these empty talking points that the left brings up to really establish themselves as sort of the, uh, the the rule and reign regarding moral standard in America. Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime you get one of these progressives, Buttigieg is a perfect example of this, talking about the Bible, they only really know two passages, and they take them both out of context. One is some portion of the Sermon on the Mount, usually about judging or, you know, love or what have you. But then they also take Matthew 25, the, the sheep and the goats, and they always use sheep and the goats to promote social justice. And you're right. I mean, this is, and again, if you know your Bible and you're listening to this kind of rhetoric, you can spot it right away. Now, some 
something I wanted to hone in on because I think this is so on the money and I've been thinking the same thing for a long time. And it has to do with what a lot of people know as the Young, Restless and Reformed movement. This has become very dominant in evangelicalism in the last three decades. You actually note in the book that years ago, Reformed Protestants were among some of the most susceptible of all believers to the idea of socialism. Now, I found that fascinating because when you look at a lot of the wokeness and the social justice stuff and we must be part of the culture and we must understand the culture, that's coming from the Tim Keller wing. So can you comment on that? What is the context here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing that. And, you know, Keller's a, or Keller's a guy that, you know, I like a lot of his writings. I think that he's, you know, he's a brilliant guy, but I think he's given into some of these concepts. And, you know, there seems to be a connection that I have traced, and I build this out a lot more in the book, The Christian Left, it, it, between um, what I would call radical uh, reform teaching and sort of this extreme sovereignty mindset uh, with having this predisposition towards socialist and Marxist views. Hmm. And, and, and this is something I kind of trace really, you know, uh, uh, really over the last couple hundred years as these individuals kind of tend to drift in that direction. And a lot of the Christian left that's, right, that, that's emerging right now do maintain that sort of reform socialist mindset. Now, with that said, I appreciate John Calvin's writings. I appreciate a lot of things that the, the Protestant Reformation did. I'm, in fact, a Protestant myself. But I think that we have to be careful that we really um, uh, reevaluate this doctrine of extreme sovereignty to make sure that we don't get into a fatalistic mindset uh, that really kind of makes us uh, rely on on uh, the state the same way that we're relying, you know, on God. That's interesting. So explain that a little more, just so listeners understand. When you're talking about the connection between the doctrine of God's sovereignty, as the Reformed would interpret it, and the interest in socialism among so many Reformed Protestants, what is it that they think about God's sovereignty that leads them toward more of a worldview that says the state should have this great big role? Uh, Connect the dots, if you would. Yeah, so a couple things. First of all, um, an extreme view of God's sovereignty basically makes you look at your lot in life and say that this is what God wanted for me, and it's where he has me, and there's really no need for me to do anything or to try to get out of this situation because it must be God's will if I found myself here. Hmm. And so this can be very dangerous. It can, make, it can take somebody who is in, a, in a sort of a, a dangerous or, or detrimental situation and, and really kind of have them embrace that or accept that as sort of God's God's plan for their life. It also, you know, uh, likewise, you know, in Scripture, we never see, um, yes, we're supposed to depend upon the Lord, but it's always a synergistic effort. Yeah. You know, when Moses was yeah. on the bank of the Red Sea, he's, he does what any pastor would do. He, he tells the people, sit down, we're going to go to the Lord, and we're going to pray. And God literally interrupts his prayer meeting and says, Moses, what are you doing? He's like, we're praying, you know. And he goes, no, pick up your staff, walk out in the waters, and raise your staff and part the waters. And he parts the Red Sea. It was a synergistic effort, God's power, man's movement. And so, you know, this is the same position we take today, that it's not just about, you know, us kind of sitting back and saying everything happens for a reason, you know, whatever happens must be God's will, because what that does is it opens us up. If we're already just accepting anything that happens in life as God's will, it's also pretty easy to transfer that into looking at the state the same way, and anything that the state does must be the right answer. We've seen the state make a lot of wrong decisions over the last year regarding everything from race to COVID, um, and and I think it's important that we you know that we that we continue to think, we continue to look at life as an interactive, synergistic relationship with God, and we don't just give in to sort of these um, uh, sort of these extreme doctrines that that make God this divine puppet master 
responsible for all calamity in the world. Yeah, it's very interesting because I have talked to a lot of people who are reformed and conservative who are scratching their heads and saying, I don't understand this. I mean, how do you get more conservative than Calvinism? And yet I hear all of these, uh, you know, gospel coalition types being leftists. I don't understand, but that kind of explains a little bit about it. And people can read more in your book, too. I also wanted to ask you, there, there has been a lot of overlap. And you mentioned Jonathan Merritt earlier. Jonathan Merritt has been a very big influence on trying to turn the uh, church left. And, you know, his father was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at one time, and he's a far leftist. But it's interesting to see people like him, people like Russell Moore from the ERLC at the Southern Baptist mm-hmm. Convention, who's had an incredible influence turning the uh, church left intentionally, politically speaking. And this brings up the issue of George Soros funding. And, I, you know, we have talked about this before, and I know this is something that a lot of Christians have talked about. This, when you're talking about funding, that whether it goes directly to organizations or if it goes in a pass-through direction through, you know, for example, Soros, the Open Society Foundations uh, funding the National Immigration Forum, which then in turn funded the Evangelical Immigration Table, they can credibly say, we didn't get Soros money. Well, they didn't. They got money as a pass-through through another organization. But can you speak to this issue of how much the political left is working with the religious left to try to hijack the church. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, my team, I'll, I'll say this, my team is currently actually investigating some of those, uh, some of those specific instances and really looking at the relationship between some of, uh, of this very left-leaning funding and the, the acceptance of that from uh, faith-oriented institutions. And so this is a very, very important topic, and we're, we're doubling down on, on really, you know, looking at this more. Um, I do want to say this. You know, there's a, there's a term that's used among uh, some on the left that's been called rent and evangelical. Yes. And essentially what we are seeing is that there are, uh, um, you know, financial sources that, that have very uh, deconstructionist views of society um, that lean very heavily, either Marxist or socialist, or at times, you know, seemingly anarchist, that are providing funding. And, and you know, Christian institutions, they need money, right? Yep. And so it becomes an opportunity for them to sort of uh, uh, create these attachments. And it usually happens through these pass-through uh, organizations, as you mentioned. And so, you know, it's, it, and I can tell you that this is happening at a lot of places, yep. um, from, from Christian media outlets to universities. Now, does that mean that everybody in the Christian world is corrupt? Certainly not. There's lots of great people. I've been in this business for a long time, and I can tell you that there are some phenomenal people doing some really great work for the kingdom. But it means that we really have to investigate where we're putting our dollars and where we're showing our support, because a lot of these organizations are going through what I call mission drift, yeah. is they start as being a faith-based organization. And, you know, perfect examples of this would be, uh, you know, say something like the Boy Scouts or, uh, you know, the YMCA that, you know, they're, and they're, you know, arguably still doing some fine work, some might say, and I'm not trying to imply that they're taking money from Soros, but we've seen mission drift in them where they started as faith-based institutions, and over time they've really lost that faith component, and, and they've sort of shaved that away. That's happened because of money that they have accepted and funding that they have accepted from a lot of different sources that just sort of, you know, uh, um, you know demands over time that they become more secularized. And this is really the goal of the left, is to secularize the church. It's something that we've already happened with, seen happen with a lot of um, America's synagogues, is that, that you know, Judaism has become very largely secularized in many people's eyes, and there's a major effort right now to do that to the church. Uh, and really, what it, it maintains the culture of Christianity in the sense of, 
having something to hope in and having a place to find, you know, friends and meet people in a church structure, but it really strips it from all of its power. And I think this is exactly what Scripture is, you know, in the New Testament warns us against and to really be wary of. Well, and it seems like really this is a rallying cry to true, faithful, biblical Christians. Pay attention to what's going on around you and make sure that you're standing on God's Word, that you stay faithful even as all of this is going on. You know, there was a really uh, concerning stat here recently from Pew Forum uh, that 24% of Christians, church-going Christians, is all that's left of Christians that believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. Wow. And, you know, that means that 76% of the church believes that the Bible is something less than infallible or inerrant. And I think that that is, that's a stat that should really kind of wake us up. And I think that, you know, believers who take their faith seriously, they need to really, you know, uh, look at how they can kind of double down on that. It's not about, you know, your good behavior. It's about maintaining a relationship with the Lord, trusting in His Word, and really, you know, distancing ourselves from some of these, uh, um, uh, you know, false doctrines, lies, heresies that are out there. Yeah, thank you so much. Lucas Miles, the name of the book, The Christian Left. Thanks so much, Lucas, for being here. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host. Janet Mefford. You might have seen the recent viral video of that 29-year-old Jewish man being violently attacked in Times Square by a group of men shouting anti-Semitic slurs at him. And Joseph Borgen, the man in question, reported they were macing him for a minute straight. They kicked him, they punched him, they beat him, and they hit him with flags. And this isn't even an isolated incident. Physical or verbal assaults were reported against Jews, not only in New York City, but also Los Angeles and South Florida and other parts of the world during the recent Hamas attacks on Israel and that nation's subsequent self-defense. Now, President Biden and some other prominent Democrats finally came out to condemn anti-Semitism, but some of these same politicians had signed on in sponsoring a bill by AOC that would halt the sale of weapons to Israel. It's just crazy. What does this situation reveal to us about the left and the attempted Marxist revolution that seems to be rising all around us? And more importantly, what can Israel actually teach us about confronting terrorist threats and propaganda warfare from radicals. We're going to discuss it today with David Rubin. He is former mayor of Shiloh, Israel, and founder and president of Shiloh Israel Children's Fund and is out with a great new book we're going to talk about called Confronting Radicals, What America Can Learn from Israel. David, it's so great to have you with us again. How are you doing? Well, thank you, Janet. Good to be back with you. Well, what are your thoughts on all these recent anti-Semitic attacks as Israel was rightly defending itself from Hamas? I mean, America used to be united on this principle that we got behind Israel, and now it seems not so much. Well, there's been a, a, a horrible convergence in America. It's a convergence of a movement towards secularism, a movement towards Marxism, and a movement towards radicalism on both of those fronts. Right. And because of that movement, so there is a convergence with anti-Semitism, because they tend to go together. 
and especially in our times. Yeah, they do. And it's interesting how long it took some of these leftist politicians to actually say something so basic, like we shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, we should condemn anti-Semitic attacks. I mean, that seems like a pretty basic thing. But even some of these reactions from these Democrats said, we also condemn Islamophobia, which is completely out of line with even the FBI hate crime statistics showing overwhelmingly the people who are most likely to be attacked for their religion in America are Jewish people. Well, that's correct, but the but the problem is that they're on the defensive. Yeah, the Democrats are on the defensive because, or shall I say, the moderate, the remnant of the moderate Democrats is on the defensive because they because the, this whole movement, which which has evolved over several decades, you know, everyone thinks, by the way, that it's just in the past couple of years or just just since. George Floyd. Uh, no, it, it, this has been evolving for several decades. Right. And because it's been evolving for several decades, uh, the, 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 the thought police have been rising. And, you know, it's, 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 it's truly 1984, meaning the George Orwell's novel, mm-hmm. You know, or or Animal Farm, which was his other one, yeah. uh, that was that was quite noteworthy for similar reasons. Yes. Uh, you know, th- those those novels spoke about the thought police, spoke about the former Soviet Union at the time when it was rising, and 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 you know, Stalinism was, and and you know, Leninism and Stalinism and the repression of people and the the persecution of people and throwing them in in um, you know in in jails uh, for extended amounts of times because they disagree with the ruling Communist Party uh, well that's what we're heading towards if people don't get a handle on this very very quickly and the, you know the United States you know is a country that is built on a, amazing freedoms with roots in the Hebrew Bible and you could ask any of the founding fathers about that. Well, I guess you can't ask them, but they, they certainly know about it and knew about it, and, and you see it in their writings. Uh, so that, that connection with Israel and and that bonding with Judeo-Christian civilization, it coincides with American freedom and American hard work and American greatness and American exceptionalism. And the converse, unfortunately, is also true. The converse, which we have seen in the past couple of years, which is the riots and the looting and which let's let's not forget rooting is stealing. Yes. um, And and in a violent way. And all, all of this that has been happening, it's it's uh it's growing it's frightening, and and but it's an outgrowth of something that had built up over several decades. And uh, it, you know, if people don't get control of it and and start taking steps to turn it around, uh, then America is doomed. And uh, you know, and I I take absolutely no pleasure in that as a dual citizen. And you know, I, I was born and raised in the United States. I'm still a citizen. I've lived in Israel for 30 years. I've sacrificed for Israel. I've been wounded in a terrorist attack for Israel, and I and I have fought for Israel. But but I 
I would be absolutely uh, devastated if America went down. I would be very, very upset, and I, and I don't want to see it happen. I yeah. know that there are so many good people in America that can prevent that from happening. Well, that's what we're hoping and praying for, too. I, something else you touched on in your book that goes along with this idea of radicalism rising in America is what we went through with the pandemic at the worst point of it, where we had these COVID lockdowns. And you rightly point out this was not about the virus. This was about locking down the economy and damaging Trump. And we saw what came out of that. But when you're looking at how some of those, uh, in particular, leftist politicians behaved, and in particular for for us as Christians, we look at how a lot of these churches were treated. And you're not essential. You have to stay closed, but the abortion clinics can stay open. What kind of window did that give you or insight did that give you into the kind of dangers that we face that you've just outlined? It just made it clearer. Uh, The you know, there, there, there definitely uh, were, were parallels that just couldn't be avoided. And, you know, and I say this, you know, having seen that there were lockdowns in Israel also, uh, but the lockdowns in Israel were done for different reasons. I, I didn't think it was the best approach uh, to doing away with COVID. And in the end, it was the vaccines that did away with it here. Yeah. But, but, uh, but even so... Uh, I saw I saw the lockdowns in America as as an, an opportunity for the Democrats to control things and to you know, it fit right in with the theme of the thought police and, and it wasn't because it was good 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 writing for my book <laughs> it was it was just clear to me that the the whole concept of this this virus that came out of communist China. Of the Communist Party of China, uh, that that sent it to the free world, that sent it around to to the to the Western countries, and whether, whether uh, you know we could debate uh, for for a long time about whether it was intentional or or not intentional. I believe it was intentional, mm-hmm. but uh, but the the fact that it happened, and and the fact that the Communist Party of China represents locking down the people represents shutting down people's mouths and shutting down their views if they disagree. And we've seen that recently in Hong Kong and seen what they do. Uh, This is the same as it was in the Soviet Union. And it's the same as what the radicals of Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all of the others would like to do in America. And they've already started. They've already been doing it. Yeah, they are doing it. And and add to that all of the information that's subsequently come out about the fact that you have Dr. Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins involved in getting funding to that Wuhan lab and helping that bat lady do some of her uh, research within the Wuhan lab. And, and, you know, that's kind of blotted out from the media here in large measure. But one of the most important things we need to get into is how America can learn from Israel about confronting radicals. We're going to tackle that when we come back David Rubin. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit health care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford. On a 100-degree day in Ethiopia, Africa, hundreds gathered for Sunday worship outdoors, and some walked an hour to be there. Afterward, 30-year-old Cademan frantically copied scriptures from an old Bible to a piece of paper. Then his face turned sad as he closed the Bible and handed it back to its owner, one of only a few in that church of hundreds to have a Bible. You see, Cademan loves the Lord, leads his family, and is faithful at Sunday worship, but he's never read a single verse in his own Bible because Bibles are very difficult to obtain where he lives. Whoever comes our way and is able to give us a Bible, it will be a great blessing. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD. 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us David Rubin. He is former mayor of Shiloh, Israel and founder and president of Shiloh, Israel Children's Fund, as well as author of the book we're discussing called Confronting Radicals, What America Can Learn from Israel. And as we've been discussing, David, America has no shortage of radicals these days. What can we learn from Israel? Because Israel has been just genius in so many ways at fighting off its enemies, uh, whether they're there in Israel itself or firing missiles from without. Tell us a little bit about what you think we ought to be taking away from some of Israel's good decisions on confronting radicals? Well, first of all, let, let me say this. Uh, there is a prophecy, a well-known prophecy, that refers to Israel as a light unto the nations. Yep. And th- that doesn't mean that everything that we do is, is correct. And it doesn't mean that, that, we should only, that people should only learn from our successes. Uh, being a light unto the nations also means that you can learn from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've had a lot of successes as the biblical people and as the, as the modern state of Israel. Uh, we've also had some very noteworthy mistakes. And, and that has a lot to do with the whole thing about uh, tearing down monuments to American heroes and mm-hmm. burning American flags and and burning Bibles. You know, we saw all of those things happening at the at the so-called peaceful demonstrations of the past couple of years. Uh, the, you know, any time a white policeman uh, happened to uh, kill a black person, and you know, just uh, just pulling the, all those events out of the air without knowing what actually happened in each of those events. 
that was racism. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the actual thing that happened, that's another story. Yeah. Well, okay, look at Israel. Uh, so, so first of all, uh, one of our greatest successes has been in understanding, uh, and the, the success, by the way, comes from one of our mistakes. We've learned from that mistake, uh, which is that you do not appease terrorists. No. You do not appease those who are trying to destroy your country. And, that, and that's exactly what we did uh, during the Oslo peace process when, when we agreed in the 1990s to give seven autonomous cities to the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was sort of reinvented as the Palestinian Authority. Uh, so they were given those seven cities, and the idea was that we would appease them, we would, we would give them a little bit of what they want, and, and hopefully that will satisfy them, and, and they will suddenly become upstanding citizens and, and you know, great um, neighbors. Uh, well, that didn't happen at all. In, in the end, uh, or even from the beginning, I should say, uh, it, it turned into a, a terrorist war against Israel. And for the past two and a half decades, almost three decades now, we have been fighting against that, against that terrorist war uh, that, that has been afflicting Israel. And the Palestinian Authority that we created has been paying terrorists every single month. Anyone who has killed or wounded a Jew gets a salary. And, and you know, I, Janet, I was wounded in a terrorist attack some years back, along with my three-year-old son who was shot in the head. And, and those terrorists were eventually caught by the Israeli army. But they've been in jail. And even though they've been in jail, they have been receiving salaries every month oh. from the Palestinian Authority. It goes through their families, and it's not given to them directly, obviously, but their family gets those salaries every single month. Oh. And this is something that Israel has learned from, and an overwhelming majority of the population today is against any land-for-peace formula where we have to give them land in order to get a promise of peace or a piece of paper, and and, and most of the almost all of the country, an overwhelming majority, does not would would never agree to a Palestinian state in the biblical heartland of Israel today. So, so we have learned that lesson, and I, I call on Americans to learn that lesson as well. Uh, you're not going to stop the violent days of rage uh, by by pandering to to those who are carrying them out. And, and the, the rioters and the looters, uh, you could promise to slightly defund the police like a lot of the moderate Democrat politicians are trying to do, uh, but that's not going to solve the problem. It's only going to bring crime in those same communities that they claim that they are trying to help. Right. 
Yeah, it's such a good thing to remind people about, because when you think about all of the people who complain about, oh, we need peace in Palestine and Israel need to come together and, you know, all the talk that has been issued over that, uh, you have these Muslims calling for the destruction of Israel. You have Iran calling for the destruction of Israel, the little Satan, and then the USA is the big Satan. I mean, we have to keep this in mind when we're looking at what's going on with radicals here. There is a parallel because these are people within the United States who want to destroy the United States. So why do you think it is that we're not more attuned to the idea that you don't negotiate with terrorists, whether they happen to be, you know, leftist terrorists here at home in the United States or Islamic terrorists over there in the Middle East? Uh, Because Americans are are still in shock. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, uh, Americans are still in shock from the events of the past couple of years. And the the radical left has learned to be aggressive. Yes. They've learned that aggression pays and that aggression and that the, uh, you, if you're aggressive, then you will get what you want. And so if you look at the, at the, the radicals in America, the people who are fighting against the traditional family, the people who are fighting against the mention of God in public schools or, or a silent prayer, uh, which is the most sensible thing in the world. Uh, you know, the, the people who are fighting against all of these things and who are fighting for socialism, uh, the, well, they, they've just learned that if you're very aggressive and, and you tell people uh, what they can do and can't do, you play thought police and, and you tell people that they can't say the words mother and father in Congress mm. because well, that might be too positive about traditional family. And then people are on defensive and they're apologizing for it. Uh, This is something that has to end and people have to stand up. Now, in Israel, we don't destroy monuments to Israeli heroes. You know, we know that King David and King Solomon, the the great kings of Israel, biblical Israel, uh, they made mistakes. We talk about their mistakes openly and we learn from them. And, and we also know that the, some of the more modern leaders, like Theodore Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, and David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, they made mistakes, too. Mm-hmm. And, and, but we don't, we don't uh, pretend that they didn't make mistakes, but we honor the great things that they did. And like we honor King David and King Solomon, we, we honor the great things that leaders do. We don't vandalize their monuments. We don't tear down the, their names from street signs and, and buildings. And, and this is a, really a lesson to be learned, because if, if you tear down the foundations of your country, uh, then your country is going to collapse. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I know that the far left wants that to happen. Uh, but uh, I, I think that most Americans don't want that to happen. No, we certainly don't. And I think your point about Americans still being in shock is quite accurate. We need to get over it, though, because we have a country to save. And I'm very encouraged when you're giving some of these ideas on how we best can confront the revolution, which people can read about in your book. You say the very encouraging line that nothing is irreversible. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind. I mean, things can look very dark, but sometimes they're darkest before the dawn. If Americans, patriotic Americans who want to preserve our values, will come together and get out of their shock, their shell shock system there and, and fight for our country. Who knows what yes. could be reversed, but we need some courage, don't we? We need some basic backbone. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, Janet. And, what, and, and one thing that I, I point out in the book is that 
when when Israel signed, when you know, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and you know Shimon Peres, when they, when they signed uh, the the Oslo Accords in 1993, and Palestinians were were rioting in the streets, waving their Palestinian flags and attacking Jews wherever they could find them. Uh, I will never forget those days, and it, mm. those days were depressing. Yeah, uh, because I knew. You know, I remember talking to my mother. She said, David, is there going to be peace? I said, no, no, mom, there is going to be war. Oh, my goodness. David, listen, it was so wonderful to have you here. People can check out your book, Confronting Radicals, What America Can Learn from Israel by David Rubin. Thank you, David, so much for being here. It was wonderful to talk to you. And thank you so much for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. Always a pleasure to have you along and hope you can join us next time. God bless. God bless.